Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right. Today, we're going to jump into Matthew 19 and 20, Mark 10 and Luke 18. There's some interesting stuff here. So let's start with Matthew 19. Well, this is one day Jesus is just teaching and he gets approached by a sincere young man. And this young man asks, good master, what good thing can I do so that I can have eternal life? And Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? There's none good, but there's God. But anyway, to answer your question, if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. And so keeping it pretty simple here, right? And the young man says, well, which commandments? And Jesus is like, well, how about you start with the basics? Try not to murder people or commit adultery or still or bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man is like, done. Uh, like, I, I, I do those all the time. And then he's like, I, I, I haven't ever murdered people. I, I, I've kept these commandments since I was a small child. What lack I yet? And Jesus says, well, if you want to be complete, go and sell all that thou hast and give it to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard these sayings, he was, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, I'm telling you, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's like, it's straight up easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they're like, "Uh, can anybody go to the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, for individuals, like it's, it's impossible. With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Basically, Jesus is just giving us even more evidence of how much we rely on Jesus, not on us. But interestingly enough, that is not the message that his disciples hold on to. The message Jesus clearly teaches is reliance on him as the Savior. But uh, being normal people like you and I, Peter says, well, what about us? We have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have? In other words, he's like, hey, aren't we doing a good job? That's interesting. All of us have this tendency where we want to get credit for the good things we are doing. And Jesus patiently replies, yes, you are doing a good job. You have followed me. And when you have the resurrection, you're going to, when the son of man sits on his throne of glory, you shall sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. He's like, everyone that has forsaken houses, brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit an everlasting life. So that's an interesting response, right? The young man comes up and says, how do I get eternal life? He says, keep the commandments. When he digs deeper, he's like, well, if you want to be more complete, here's something you can do. And he has struggles with that. But his disciples are like, oh, but I'm doing that. I'm looking good. And Jesus is like, yes, you are doing good. And then he adds this interesting parable that kind of, I don't know, changes, adds to this meritocracy that Peter is describing. He says, Jesus says, heaven is like a guy who owns a farm. 
And during the time of harvest, he needs extra laborers in his vineyard. So he goes down to the the temp agency, the Home Depot, whatever you want to say. And there he, he hires the laborers that he needs. And he agrees with them for a solid day's wages, which at the time would have been a penny for a day's work. But uh, as the harvest moves along, he needs more help. So about nine o'clock in the morning, he sees others still without work at the marketplace. And he says, go to the vineyard and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went again. He does the same thing uh, at noon and at three o'clock. And then about an hour before quitting time on a 12-hour day, he finds others that, that still haven't found a job. And he's like, why are you here all day? Why aren't you working? He's like, well, nobody's hired us. We'd love to work. He's like, I'll put you to work. Go to my vineyard, work for the next hour, and whatever is right, I'll give you. And so after 12 hours laboring in the hot sun, um, the Lord of the vineyard, Uh, calls all the laborers together and he pays the last ones who have only worked an hour first and then he goes up the chain to those who have been working all 12 hours and he gives each of them a penny, a full day's wage. But when it comes to the guys who had worked for 12 hours, they thought that they should have received more. They deserved surely more than the person who only worked an hour. But they only received a penny. And when they only received a penny, they murmured against the good man of the house. Saying, these last have wrought but one hour and you have made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. And he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. You agreed with me for a penny. Take what is yours. Go thy way. I will give into this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. If you're not shocked, you're not really listening. Like us being raised in a culture of getting what you deserve, where hard work, education, and hustle pays off, this is a shocking teaching. It is not work hard and you get more. It is not get what you deserve. It is work 12 hours in the sun, 12 hours and get exactly the same as some incompetent moron who couldn't get a job all day and only worked an hour because he's an idiot. And this is what Jesus is saying heaven is? This is what Jesus is saying heaven is. I work all the time. I'm always good. And you're going to give it to somebody who is like slacked off their entire life? These sinners and layabouts and nobodies and slackers? What? This is not the gospel I believe in. Actually, I think it's exactly the gospel we believe in. Here, here's Adam Miller. I know, I know. I'm on, a, I'm on a roll. I can't resist. I'm so sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. It's so good. But maybe there won't be one next week. We'll, we'll just have to see. He says, the master is accused of wrongdoing. 
He's accused of breaking the law and leaving it unfulfilled in this parable. And if the point of the law is to make sure that each person only gets exactly what they deserve and no more, the master's disgruntled accusers are right. Justice has been denied. But the master's accusers are wrong. They've misunderstood the law and they've misunderstood how to fulfill it. They've misunderstood justice. In the hands of the master, the law hasn't been broken, it's been fulfilled. In the hands of the master, the law is fulfilled instead by determining what each laborer needs. And what each laborer needs is enough of a wage to stave off starvation for one more day. What they need is enough bread to see the world recreated again tomorrow. The master's choices here don't amount to a gratuitous act of mercy that flouts fulfillment of the law and compromises justice. The master's actions rather are the only sort of actions that are just, the only sort of action that could fulfill the law. In the hands of the master, the the ideal end represented by the law is not used to make sure that people who are people having fallen short of that ideal get vengeful punishment they deserve. In the hands of the master, justice is accomplished instead by using the law to determine what each person now needs to approach the ideal and to embody it. And this is me, not Adam. I, like, I, I once knew a man that said that an individual who had fallen short, confessed of his sins, repented, should go into church authorities and demand greater punishment. That man is damned. That man who said that is an idolater. That man does not know God or the work of justice. That man does not worship God. He worships himself. Back to Adam here. We should avoid thinking about justice as if we, if it were even theoretically opposed or separable from God's work of love. As a result, I take any notion of justice that does not understand love to be the governing end of God's law to be inadequately conceived and even morally compromised. It is never morally legitimate to use the law to get revenge, secure treasures, or avoid the end of the world. The law's only possible fulfillment is love. We should avoid thinking about love as if it were separable from justice. As a result, any approach that separates love from the work of fulfilling God's law, and this is and this from the work of sacrificing all things is inadequately conceived and even morally compromised. The law, while never sufficient, is always necessary for love. Love and justice joined in the work of judging what is needed in order to create the world in God's image are never at cross purposes. As a practical matter, this is what a daily walk in Christ look like. looks like. Setting aside fantasies of gain, setting aside fears of loss, sacrificing all things. As I do that, I witness and forgive the sun's rising and setting. I witness and forgive the rain that falls and the heat that bakes. I witness and forgive the oatmeal that is not cold and the fruit that has browned. I witness and forgive the pants that no longer fit. I witness and forgive my creaking knees and receding gums and graying beard. I witness and forgive the limits of my talents and successes. I witness and forgive the independence of my children. I witness and forgive my wife's love. I witness and forgive the strength and weaknesses of my parents. I witness and forgive the church's still in progress embodiment of Christ. I witness and forgive the loss of all things. I witness and forgive the end of the world. 
and forgiving all things day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, I stop defensively judging what the world deserves and finally find myself empowered instead to recognize what sacrifices this passing world needs. End quote. Listen, if that didn't work for you, if Adam Miller doesn't work for you, just get, listen to this. This is the point. God is not out to punish you. We sometimes live our whole lives trying to be clean, trying to be good enough, trying to avoid hell. And if we do, we have missed the point. God is not out there looking for your wrongdoing. God is looking for you to be a God. His judgment is not a form of balancing scales, all your bad acts with an equal amount of good acts or an equal amount of his blood. That's not the point. His judgment is perceiving what you need to, in order to be transmuted into a new being. He is out to make his children into creative forces for good. Try that doctrine on. Stop trying to categorize how you are better than others because you have got your life together. And just be grateful that there is a power greater than you moving for good. The, the, the point of the whole story, the point that he's telling Peter who's like, but I'm a good guy, right? He says the line, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I should stick with you a little bit. You good people who love Jesus, who are going extra and listening to a podcast about Jesus. You are the extra here. Does that line haunt you a little bit? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. What does that mean when it comes to the gospel? I think it means that being a good boy and earning your way into heaven isn't at all what you think. Honestly, I thought about a a couple different ways we could illustrate this. And I settled on this story from Flannery O'Connor. It's called The Revelation. It's going to take me a minute to tell it to you but it's a masterpiece at its imagery and and what it's trying to tell you about this idea of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now, just so you know some context, Flannery O'Connor writes about life in the rural South of the United States in the 1940s and 1950s. And she does a great job at capturing the tone of that era. Um, And and so you'll, you'll see that it's different from your era now. But what you're really listening for, what you're going to tune into right now is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And and again, I warn you, it's going to take a minute, but I think the payoff's worth it. Ready? All right, here we go. The doctor's waiting room, which was very small, was almost full when the Turpins entered. And Mrs. Turpin, who who was very large, made it look even smaller by her presence. She stood looming at the head of the magazine table set at the center of it, a living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. Her little bright black eyes took in all the patients as she sized up the seating situation. There was one vacant chair and a place on the sofa occupied by a blonde child in a dirty blue romper who should have been told to move over and make room for the lady. He was five or six, but Mrs. Turpin saw at once that no one was going to tell him to move over. He was slumped down in the seat, his arms idle at his sides, his eyes idle in his head. His nose ran unchecked. 
Mrs. Turpin put a firm hand on Claude's shoulder and said in a voice that included anyone who wanted to listen, Claude, you sit in that chair there, and gave him a push down into the vacant one. Claude was florid and bald and sturdy and somewhat shorter than Mrs. Turpin, but he sat down as if he were accustomed to doing what she told him to. Mrs. Turpin remained standing. The only man in the room besides Claude was a lean, stringy old fellow with a rusty hand spread out on each knee, whose eyes were closed as if he were asleep or dead, or pretending to be so as to not get up and offer his seat. Her gaze settled agreeably on a well-dressed, gray-haired lady, whose eyes met hers and whose expression said, If that child belonged to me, he would have some manners and move over. There's plenty of room there for you and him too. Claude looked up with a sigh and made as if to rise. Sit down, Mrs. Turpin said. You know you're not supposed to stand on that leg. He has an ulcer on his leg, she explained. Claude lifted his foot onto the magazine table and rolled his trouser leg up to reveal a purple swelling on a plump marble white calf. My, the pleasant lady said, how did you do that? A cow kicked him, Mrs. Turpin said. Goodness, said the lady. Claude, Claude rode his trouser down. Maybe the little boy would move over, the lady suggested, but the child did not stir. Somebody will be leaving in a minute, Mrs. Turpin said. She could not understand why a doctor with so much money as they made charge him $5 a day just to stick their heads in the hospital door and look at you couldn't afford a decent-sized waiting room. This one was hardly bigger than a garage. The table was cluttered with limp-looking magazines, and at one end, if it, um, there was a big green glass ashtray full of cigarettes, butts, and cotton wads with little blood spots on them. If she had anything to do with the running of this place, that would have been emptied every so often. There were no chairs against the wall at the head of the room. It had a rectangular-shaped panel in it that permitted a view of the office where the nurse came and went and the secretary listened to the radio. A plastic fern in a gold pot sat in the opening and trailed its fronds down almost to the floor. The radio was playing uh, gospel music softly. Just then the inner door opened and a nurse with the highest stack of yellow hair Mrs. Turpin had ever seen put her face in the crack and called for the next patient. The woman sitting beside Claude grasped the two arms of the chair and hoisted herself up. She pulled her dress free from her legs and lumbered through the door where the nurse had disappeared. Mrs. Turpin eased into the vacant chair, which held her tight as a corset. I wish I could lose weight, she said, and rolled her eyes and gave a comic sigh. Oh, you aren't fat, the stylish lady said. Oh, I am too, Mrs. Turpin said. Claude, he eats all he wants and he never weighs over 175 pounds. But me, I just look at something good uh, to eat and I gain some weight. And her stomach and shoulders shook with laughter. You can eat all you want too, can't you, Claude? And she turned to him. Claude only grinned. Well, as long as you have such a good disposition, the stylish lady said, I don't think it makes a bit of difference what size you are. You just can't beat a good disposition. Next to her was a fat girl of 18 or 19 scowling into a thick blue book which Mrs. Turpin saw was entitled Human Development. The girl raised her head and directed her scowl at Mrs. Turpin as if she did not like her looks. She appeared annoyed that anyone should speak while she tried to read. The poor girl's face was blue with acne and Mrs. Turpin thought how pitiful it was to have a face like that at her age. She gave the girl a friendly smile, but the girl only scowled the harder. Mrs. Turpin put 
herself was fat, but she had always had good skin. And though she was 47 years old, there was not a wrinkle in her face except around her eyes from laughing too much. Next to the ugly girl was the child, still in the exact same position. And next to him was a thin, leathery old woman in a cotton print dress. She and Claude had three sacks of chicken feed in their plump house, in their pump house, that was in the same print as the woman's dress. She had seen from the first that the child belonged with the old woman. She could tell by the way that they sat kind of vacant and white trashy, as if they could sit there until doomsday if nobody called and told them to get up. And at right angles, but next to the well-dressed pleasant lady was a lank-faced woman who was certainly the child's mother. She had on a yellow sweatshirt and wine-colored slacks, both gritty-looking, and the rims of her lips were stained with snuff. Her dirty yellow hair was tied behind with a little piece of red paper ribbon. Worst kind of people, Mrs. Turpin thought. The gospel hymn playing was, When I looked up and he looked down, and Mrs. Turpin, who knew it, supplied the last line mentally. And one of these days I know we are gonna wear a crown. Without appearing to, Mrs. Turpin always noticed people's feet. The well-dressed lady had on red and gray suede shoes that match her dress. Mrs. Turpin had on a good, patent, good black patent leather pumps. The ugly girl had on Girl Scout shoes and heavy socks. The old woman had on tennis shoes and the white trashy mother had on what appeared to be bedroom slippers. Black straw with gold braid threaded through them exactly what you would have expected her to have on. Sometimes at night when she couldn't go to sleep, Mrs. Turpin would occupy herself with the question of who she would have chosen to be if she couldn't have been herself. If Jesus had said to her before he made her, there's only two places available for you. You can either be a poor black person or white trash. What would she have said? Please, Jesus, please, she would have said. Just let me wait until there's another place available. And he would have said, no, you have to go right now. And I only have those two places, so make up your mind. She would have wiggled and squirmed and begged and pleaded, but it would have had been no use, and finally she would have said, all right, make me a poor black person. And he would have made her a clean, respectable black woman. Next to the child's mother was a red-headed, youngish woman reading one of the magazines and working on a piece of chewing gum. Hell for leather, as Claude would say. Mrs. Turpin uh, could not see the woman's feet. She was not white trash, just common. Sometimes Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were most black people. Not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Then next to them, not above them, just away from them, were the white trash. Then above them were the homeowners, and above them were the home and landowners to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and more land. But here the complexity of it would be, begin to bear in on her, for some of the people with lots of money were common and ought to be below, she and Claude, and some of the people who had good blood had lost their money and had to rent, and then there were some black people who owned their homes and land as well. There was a black dentist in town who owned two red Lincolns and a swimming pool and a farm with a registered white-faced cattle on it. Usually by the time she had fallen asleep, all the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head and she would dream they were all crammed together in a big box car being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. That's a beautiful clock, she said and nodded to her right. 
It was a big wall clock, the face encased in a brass sunburst. Yes, it's very pretty, the stylish lady said agreeably. And right on the dot, too, she added, glancing at her watch. The ugly girl beside her cast an eye upward at the clock, smirked and looked directly at Mrs. Turpin and smirked again. Then she returned her eyes to her book. She was obviously the lady's daughter because, though they didn't look anything alike as to disposition, they both had the same shape of face and the same blue eyes. On the lady, they sparkled pleasantly, but in the girl's scarred face, they appeared alternately to smolder and to blaze. What if Jesus had said, all right, you can be white, trash, or black, or ugly? Mrs. Turpin felt an awful pity for the girl, though she thought it was one thing to be ugly and another to act ugly. The woman with the snuff-stained lips turned around in her chair and looked up at the clock. She turned back and appeared to look a little to the side of Mrs. Turpin. There was a cast in her eyes that uh, uh, said, You want to know where you can get you one of them clocks? She asked in a loud voice. No, I already have a nice clock, Mrs. Turpin said. Once somebody like her got a leg in the conversation, it would be all over. You can get them with the green stamps, the the woman said. That's most likely where he got in his'n. Save up enough and you can get yourself almost anything. And got me some jewelry. Ought to uh, have got you a wash rag and some soap, Mrs. Turpin thought. I get contour sheets with mine, the pleasant lady said. The daughter slammed her book shut. She looked straight in front of her directly through Mrs. Turpin and on through the yellow curtain and the plate glass window which made the wall behind her. The girl's eyes seemed to lit all of a sudden with a peculiar light, an unnatural light like night road signs give. Mrs. Turpin turned her head to see if there was anything going on outside that she could see, but she could not see anything. Figures passing cast only pate shadows through the curtain. There's no reason the girl should single her out for her ugly looks. Miss Finley, the nurse said, cracking the door. The gum-chewing woman got up and passed in front of her and Claude went in at her and Claude and went into the office. She had on red high-heeled shoes. Directly across the table, the ugly girl's eyes were fixed on Mrs. Turpin, as if she had some very special reason for disliking her. This is wonderful weather, isn't it? The girl's mother said. It's good weather for cotton, but I'm struggling to find anyone to harvest mine. Do you have one of those cotton-picking machines, the pleasant lady asked? No, Mrs. Turpin said. They leave half the cotton in the field, and we don't have much cotton anyway. If you want to make it farming now, you have to have a little of everything. We got a couple of acres of cotton, a few hogs and chickens, and just enough white-faced cows that Claude can look after them himself. One thing I don't want, the white trash woman said, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand. Hogs, nasty, stinking things, a grunting and a rooting all over the place. Mrs. Turpin gave her the merest edge of her attention. Our hogs are not dirty and they don't stink, she said. They're cleaner than some children I've seen. Their feet never touch the ground. We have a pig parlor. That's where you raise them on concrete, she explained to the pleasant lady. And Claude scoots them down with the hose every afternoon and washes off the floor. Cleaner by far than that child right there, she thought. Poor nasty little thing. He had not moved except to put the thumb of his in his of his dirty hand into his mouth. The woman turned her face away from Mrs. Turpin. I know I wouldn't scoot down no hog with no hose, she said to the wall. You wouldn't have no hog to scoot down, Mrs. Turpin said to herself, a grunting and a rooting and groaning, the woman muttered. We got a little of everything, Mrs. Turpin said to the pleasant lazy. Isn't no use having more than you can handle yourself with help like it is. 
We found some people to pick our cotton this year, but Claude, had, he has to go after them and take them home again in the evening. They can't walk the half mile. No, they can't, I tell you. She said it and laughed merrily. I sure I'm tired of buttering up the help, but you got to love them if you want them to work for you. When they come in the morning, I run out and say, how y'all doing this morning? And when Claude drives them off to the field, I just wave to beat the band and they just wave back. And she waved her hand and rapid to illustrate. Like you re- uh, read out of the same book, the, the lady said, showing she understood perfectly. Child, yes, Miss Turpin said. And when they come in from the field, I run out with a bucket of ice water. That's the way it's going to be from now on. You may as well face it. One thing I know, the white trash woman said, two things I ain't gonna do. Love no hired help or scoot down no hog with no hose. And she let out a bark of contempt. The look that Miss Turpin gave the pleasant lady exchanged indicated they both understood. You have to have certain things before you could know certain things. But every time Mrs. Turpin exchanged a look with the lady, she was aware that the ugly girl's peculiar eyes were still on her and she had a trouble bringing her attention back to the conversation. When you got something, she said, you got to look after it. And when you ain't got a thing but breath and britches, she added to herself, you can't afford to come to town every morning and just sit on the courthouse copping and spit. A grotesque revolving shadow passed across the curtain behind her and was thrown palely on, palely on the opposite wall. Then the, a bicycle clattered down against the outside of the building. The door opened and a boy glided in with a tray from the drugstore. It had a large red and white paper cups on it uh, with tops on them. He was a tall, very black boy in discolored white pants and a green nylon shirt. He was chewing gum slowly as if to music. He set the tray down in the office opening next to the fern and stuck his head through to look for the secretary. She was not in there. He rested his arms on the ledge and waited, his narrow bottom stuck out, swaying slowly to the left and right. He raised a hand over his head and scratched the base of his skull. You see that button there, boy, Mrs. Turpin said? You can punch that and she'll come. She's probably in the back somewhere. Is that right, the boy said agreeably, as if he had never seen the button before. He leaned to his right and put his finger on it. She's sometimes out he said, and twisted her around to face his audience, his elbows behind him on the counter. The nurse appeared, and he twisted back again. She handed him a dollar, and he rooted in his pocket and made the change and counted it out to her. She gave him 15 cents for a tip, and he went back out with the empty tray. The heavy door swung to slowly and closed, at length with the sound of suction. For a moment, no one spoke. They ought to send all the black people back to Africa, the white trash woman said. That's where they came from in the first place. Oh, I couldn't do without my black friends, the pleasant lady said. There's a heap worse things than black people, Miss Turpin agreed. It's all kind, all kind of them, just like it's all kind of us. Yes, and it takes all kind to make the world go round, the lady said in her musical voice. And as she said it, the raw complexion girl snapped her teeth together. Her lower lip turned downward and inside out, revealing the pale pink of inside her mouth. After a second, it rolled back up. It was the ugliest face Mrs. Turpin had ever seen anyone make, and for a moment she was certain the girl had made it at her. She was looking at her as if she had known and disliked her all her life. Mrs. Turpin's life, it seemed too, not just all the girl's life. Why, girl, I don't even know you, Mrs. Turpin said silently. 
She forced her attention back to the discussion. It wouldn't be practical to send them back to Africa. The white trash woman looked at Mrs. Turpin as if she were an idiot indeed, but Mrs. Turpin was not bothered by a look considering where it came from. Then Claude came in with a joke and said it with never a smile and everybody in the office laughed except the white trash woman and the ugly girl. The girl gripped the book in her lap with her white fingers and the trashy woman looked around her from face to face as if she thought they were all idiots. The old woman in the feed sack dress continued to gaze expressionless across the floor at the high top shoes of the man opposite her, the one who had been pretending to be asleep when the turpins came in. He was laughing heartily, his hands still spread out on his knees. The child had fallen to the side and was lying now almost face down in the old woman's lap. While they recovered from their laughter, the nasal chorus on the radio kept the room silent uh, from silence. You go to blank, blank, and I'll go to mine, but we'll go back along together. And all along the blank, we'll help each other out, smiling in any other weather. Mrs. Turpin didn't catch every word, but she caught enough to agree with the spirit of the song. And it turned her thoughts sober. To help anybody out that needed it, that was her philosophy of life. She never spared herself when she found somebody in need, whether they were white or black, trash or decent. And of all she had to be thankful for, she was most thankful that this was so. If Jesus had said, you can be high society and you can have all the money you want and be thin and svelte like, but you can't be a good woman with it, she would have had to say, well, don't make me that then. Make me a good woman and it don't matter what else, how fat or ugly or how poor, her heart rose. He had not made her white trash or ugly. He had made her herself and given her uh, a little of everything. Jesus, thank you, she said. Thank you, thank you. Whenever she counted her blessings, she just felt buoyant, as if she weighed a 125 pounds instead of 180. What's wrong with your little boy, the pleasant lady asked the white trashy woman. He has an ulcer, the woman said proudly. He ain't give me a minute's peace since he was born. Him and her are just alike, she said, nodding at the old woman who was running her leathery fingers through the child's pale hair. Look like I can't get nothing down them but two Coca-Cola and candy. It's all you try to get down them, Mrs. Turpin said to herself, too lazy to light the fire. There's nothing you could tell her about people like them she didn't already know. And it was not just that they didn't have anything because if you gave them everything in two weeks, it would all be broken or filthy or they would be, have chopped it up like to light wood, the light of firewood. She knew all this from her own experience. Help them you must, but help them you couldn't. All at once, the ugly girl turned her lips inside out again. Her eyes were fixed like two drills on Mrs. Turpin. This time, there was no mistaking that there was something urgent behind them. Girl, Miss Turpin exclaimed silently, I haven't done a thing to you. The girl might be confusing her with somebody else. There was no need to sit and let herself be intimidated. You must be in college, she said boldly, looking directly at the girl. I see you reading a book there. The girl continued to stare and pointedly did not answer. The mother blushed at this rudeness. The lady asked you a question, Mary Grace, she said under her breath. I have ears, Mary Grace said. The mother blushed again. Mary Grace goes to Wellesley uh, College, she explained. She twisted one of the buttons on her dress. In Massachusetts, she added with a grimace. And in the summer, she just keeps right on studying, just reads all the time, a real bookworm. She's done real well at Wellesley. 
She's taking English and math and history and psychology and social studies she rattled on. I think it's too much. I think she ought to get out and have some fun. The girl looked as if she, she would like to hurl them all through the plate glass window. Way up north, Mrs. Turpin murmured and thought, well, it hasn't done much for her manners. I'd almost rather have him sick, the white wa- trash woman said, wrenching the attention back to herself. He's so mean when he ain't sick. Look, look like some children just take natural to meanness. It's some gets bad when they get sick, but he was the opposite. Too sick, and took sick and turned good. He don't give me no trouble now. It's me waiting to see the doctor, she said. If I was going to send anybody back to Africa, Mrs. Turpin thought, it would be your kind, woman. Yes, indeed, she said out loud, but looking up at the ceiling, it's a heap of things worse in this world and dirtier than a hog, she added to herself. I think people with bad dispositions are more to be pitied than anyone on earth, the pleasant lady said in a voice that was decidedly thin. I think the Lord has blessed me with a good one, Mrs. Turpin said. The day has never dawned that I couldn't find something to laugh at. Not since she married me anyways, Claude said with a comical straight face. Everybody laughed except the girl and the white trash woman. Mrs. Turpin's stomach shook. He's such a card, she said, that I can't help but laugh at him. The girl made a loud, ugly noise through her teeth. Her mother's mouth grew thin and tight. I think the worst thing in the world, she said, is an ungrateful person. To have everything and not appreciate it? I know a girl, she said, who has parents who would give her anything, a little brother who loves her dearly, who is, who is getting a good education, who wears the best clothes, but who can never say a kind word to anyone, who never smiles, who just criticizes and complains all day long. Is she too old to paddle, Claude asked. The girl's face was almost purple. Yes, the lady said, I'm afraid there's nothing to do but leave her to her folly. Someday she'll wake up and it'll be too late. It never hurt anyone to smile, Mrs. Turpin said. It just makes you feel better all your own. Of course, the lady said. But there are just some people who you can't tell anything to. They can't take criticism. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been beside myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition to besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got Claude. At that thought, this, she was flooded with a gratitude and a terrible pang of joy rang through her. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over the left eye. It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table toward her howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out and Claude shout, Whoa! And there was an instant when she was certain that she was about to be in an earthquake. All at once, her vision narrowed and she saw everything as it were happening in a small room far away, or as if she was looking at it from the long end of a telescope. Claude's face crumpled and fell out of sight. The nurse ran in and then ran out again. Then the gangling figure of the doctor rushed in out of the inner door. Magazines flew this way and that, and the table turned over. The girl fell with a thud, and Mrs. Turpin's vision suddenly reversed itself, and she saw everything large instead of small. 
The eyes of the white trashy woman were staring hugely at the floor. There, the girl held on the si- on one side by the nurse and the other by the mother was wrenching and churning in their grasp. The doctor was kneeling astride her, trying to hold her arm down. He managed after a second to sink a long needle into it. Mrs. Turpin felt entirely hollow except for her heart, which sung, swung from side to side as if it was agitated in a great empty drum of flesh. Somebody that's not busy, call for the ambulance, the doctor said in an offhand voice. Uh, the young doctors adopt for terrible occasions. Mrs. Turpin couldn't have moved a finger. The old man, who had been sitting next to her, skipped nimbly into the office and made the call, for the secretary still seemed to be gone. Claude, Mrs. Turpin called. He was not in his chair. She knew she must jump up and find him, but she felt like someone was trying to catch a tra- felt like someone trying to catch a train in a dream when everything moves in slow motion and the faster you try to run, the slower you go. Here I am, a suffocated voice, very unlike Claude, said. He was doubled up in the corner on the floor, pale as paper, holding his leg. She wanted to get up and go to him, but she couldn't move. Instead, her gaze was drawn slowly downward to the churning face on the floor, which she could see over the doctor's shoulder. The girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her. They seemed much lighter blue than before, as if a door had been tightly closed behind them and was now open to admit light and air. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared and her power of motion returned. She leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes. There was no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her, know her in some intense personal way, beyond time and place and condition. What do you have to say to me, she asked hoarsely, and held her breath waiting for a rev- as, a, as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment, as if she saw with pleasure that her message had struck its target. Mrs. Turpin sank back in her chair. After a moment, the girl's eyes closed and she turned her head wearily to the side. The doctor rose and handed the nurse the empty syringe. He leaned over and put both hands for a moment on the mother's shoulders, which were shaking. She was sitting on the floor, her lips pressed together, holding Mary Grace's hand in her lap. The girl's fingers were gripped like a baby's around her thumb. Go on to the hospital. I'll call and make the arrangements. Now let's see that neck, he said in a jovial voice to Mrs. Turpin. He began to inspect her neck with his first two fingers. Two little moon-shaped lines like pink fish bones were indented over her windpipe. There was the beginning of an angry wet swelling above her eye. His fingers passed over this also. Let me be, she said thickly and shook him off. See about Claude. She kicked him. I'll see about him in a minute, he said, and felt her pulse. He was a thin, gray-haired man, given to pleasantries. Go home and give yourself a vacation the rest of the day, he said, and patted her on her shoulder. Quit your patting me, Mrs. Turpin growled to herself. And put an ice pack over that eye, he said. And then he went and squatted down beside Claude and looked at his leg. After a moment, he pulled him up and Claude limped after him into the office. Until the ambulance came, the only sounds in the room were the tremulous moans of the girl's mother who continued to sit on the floor. The white trash woman didn't take her eyes off of the girl. Mrs. Turpin looked straight ahead at nothing. Presently, the ambulance drew up in the long, dark shadow behind a curtain. The attendants came in and set the stretcher down beside the girl and lifted her expertly onto it and carried her out. 
The nurse helped the mother gather her up her things. The shadow of the ambulance moved silently away, and the nurse came back in the office. That there girl is going to be a lunatic, ain't she? The white trash woman asked the nurse, but the nurse kept on back and never answered her. Yeah, she's going to be a lunatic, the white trash woman said to the rest of the room. Poor critter, the old woman murmured. The child's face was still in her lap. His eyes looked idly over his knees. He had not moved during the disturbance except to draw one leg under him. I thank God, the white woman, trash woman said fervently, I ain't a lunatic. Cloud came limping out and the Turpins went home. As their pickup truck turned down their own dirt road and made the crest of the hill, Mrs. Turpin gripped the window ledge and looked out suspiciously. The land sloped gracefully down through a field dotted with lavender weeds and the start of the rise a small yellow frame house with its little flower bed spread out and around it like a fancy apron sat primly on its accustomed place between two giant hickory trees. She could not have been more startled to see a burnt wound between two blackened chimneys. Neither of them felt like eating, so they put on their house clothes and lowered the, the shade in the bedroom and lay down, clawed with his leg up on a pillow and herself with a damp washcloth over her eye. The instant she was flat on her back, the image of the razor back hogged with warts on its face and horns coming out behind its ears snorted into her head. She moaned a low and quiet moan. I am not, she said tearfully, a warthog from hell. But the denial had no force. The girl's eyes and her words, even her tone of her voice, low but clear, directed only to her, brooked no repudiation. She had been singled out for the message. Though there was trash in the room, to whom it might justly have been applied, the full force of this fact struck her only now. There was a woman there who was neglecting her own child, but she had been overlooked. The message had been given to Ruby Turpin, a respectable, hard-working, church-going woman. The tears dried up. Her eyes began to burn instead with wrath. She rose on her elbow. The washcloth fell into her hand. Claude was laying on his back, snoring. She wanted to tell him what the girl had said. At the same time, she did not want to did not wish to put the image of herself as a warthog from hell into his mind. Hey, Claude, she muttered and pushed his shoulder. Claude opened his pale baby blue eye. She looked into it warily. He did not think about anything. What was it? He said and closed his eye again. Nothing, she said. Does your leg pain you? Hurts like hell, Claude said. It'll quit directly, she said and lay back down. In a moment, Claude was snoring again. And for the rest of the afternoon, they lay there. Claude slept. She scowled at the ceiling, occasionally raised her fist and made some small stabbing motion over her chest as if she were defending her innocence to invisible guests who were like the comforters of Job, reasonable seeming but wrong. About 5.30, Claude stirred. Gotta go pick up the cotton pickers, he sighed, not moving. She was looking straight up as if uh, there were an unintelligible handwriting on the ceiling. The protuberance over her eye was a greenish blue. Listen here, she said. What? Kiss me. Claude leaned over, kissed her loudly on the mouth, pinched her side with, uh, and their hands interlocked. Her expression of ferocious concentration did not change. Claude got up, groaning and scowling and limped off. She continued to study the ceiling. She did not get up until she heard the pickup truck coming back with the field help. 
Then she rose and thrust her feet into her brown oxfords, which she did not bother to lace, and stumped out to the back porch, got a red, black, red plastic bucket, emptied a tray of ice cubes into it, and filled it half full of water, and went out into the backyard. Every afternoon after Claude brought the hands in, one of the boys helped him out, uh, put out the hay in, and the rest waited in the back of the truck until he was ready to take them home. The truck was parked in the shade under one of the hickory trees. Hi, y'all, this evening, Miss Turpin asked, grimly appearing with the bucket and the dipper. There were three women, women and a bo- three women and a boy in the truck. We're doing nicely, the oldest woman said. How you doing? And her gaze stuck immediately on the dark lump on Mrs. Turpin's forehead. You done fell down, ain't you? She asked in a solicitous voice. The old woman was dark and almost toothless. She had an old, on an old felt hat. Miss Turpin sat at the bucket on the floor of the truck. Y'all help yourselves, she said. She looked around to make sure a cloud had gone. No, I didn't fall down, she said, folding her arms. It was something worse than that. Ain't nothing bad happened to you, the old woman said. She said it as if they all knew it. Mrs. Turpin was protected in some special way by divine providence. You just had a little fall. We were in the town at the doctor's office for the uh, for where the cow kicked Mr. Turpin, Mrs. Turpin said in a flat tone that indicated they could leave off their foolishness. And there was this girl there, a big fat girl with her face all broke out. I could look at that girl and tell she was peculiar, but I couldn't tell how. And, and me and her mama were just talking and going along and all of a sudden, wham, she throws a big book she was reading at me. And nah, the old woman cried out. And then she jumps over the table and commences to choke me. Nah, they all explained. How come she does that? What ail her? Mrs. Turpin only glared at the front of her. Something ail her, the old woman said. They carried her off in an ambulance, Mrs. Turpin continued. But before she went, she was rolling on the floor. And they were trying to hold her down and give her a shot. And she said something to me. She paused. You know what she said to me? What'd she say? They asked. She said Mrs. Turpin began and then stopped her face very dark and heavy. The sun was getting wider and wider and blanching the sky overhead so that the leaves of the hickory tree were black in the face of it. She could not bring forth the words. Something real ugly, she muttered. She sure didn't say nothing ugly to you, the old woman said. You're so sweet. You're the sweetest lady I know. Mrs. Turpin knew exactly how much hired help flattery was worth, and it added to her rage. She said she began again and finished this time with a fierce rush of breath that I was an old warthog from hell. There was an astounded silence. Where's she at? The youngest woman cried in a piercing voice. Let me see her. I'll kill her. I'll kill her with you, the other one cried. She belong in the asylum, the old woman said emphatically. You're the sweetest lady I know. Idiots, Mrs. Turpin growled to herself. You never say anything intelligent to hired help. You could talk at them, but not with them. Y'all ain't drunk your water, she said shortly. Leave the bucket in the truck when you're finished with it. I got more to do than just stand around and pass the time of day. And she moved off into the house. She stood for a moment in the middle of the kitchen. A dark protuberance over her eye looked like a miniature tornado cloud, which might at any moment sweep across the horizon of her brow. Her lower lip protruded dangerously. She squared her massive shoulders. Then she marched into the front of the house and out the side door and started down the road to the pig parlor. She had the look of a woman going single-handed, weaponless into battle. The sun was a deep yellow now, like the harvest moon, and was riding westward very fast over the far tree line, as if it meant to catch the hogs before she did. The road was rutted, and she kicked several good-sized stones out of her path as she strode along. 
The pig parlor was on a little knoll and at the end of the lane that ran off from the side of the barn. It was a square of concrete as large as the small room with a board fence about four feet high around it. The concrete floor sloped slightly so that the hogwash would drain off into a trench where it was carried into the field for fertilizer. Claude was standing on the outside on the edge of the concrete, hanging onto the top of the board, housing down the floor inside. The hose was connected to the faucet of water trough nearby. Mrs. Turpin climbed up beside him and glowered down at the hogs inside. There were seven long-snouted, bristly pigs in tan uh, with liver-colored spots and an old sow with a few weeks off from farrowing. She was lying on her side grunting. The weaned pigs were running about, shaking themselves like idiot children, their little slit pig eyes searching the floor for anything left. She had read that pegs, pigs were the most intelligent animal. She doubted it. They were supposed to be smarter than dogs. There had even been a pig astronaut that had performed his assignment perfectly but died at a heart, of a heart attack afterwards because they left him in his electric suit, sitting upright throughout his examination when naturally hogs should be on all fours. A grunting and a rooting and a groaning. Give me that hose, she said, yanking away from Claude. Go on and carry that help home and then get off that leg. You look like you might have swallowed a mad dog, Claude observed, but he got down and limped off. He paid no attention to her humors. Until he was out of earshot, Mrs. Turpin stood on the side of the pen holding the hose and pointing the stream of water at the hindquarters of any weaned pig that looked as if it might try to lie down. When he had time to get over the hill, she turned her head slightly to her wrathful eyes, scanned the path. He was nowhere in sight. She turned back again and seemed to gather herself. Her shoulders rose and she drew a breath. What do you send me a message like that for? She said in a low, fierce voice, barely above a whisper, but with the force of a shout in its consecrated, concentrated fury. How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? Her free fist was knotted, and with the other, she gripped the hose blindly, pointed the stream of water in and out of the eye of the old sow, whose outraged squeal she did not hear. The pig parlor commanded a view of the back pasture where the twenty beef cows were gathered in the hay, around the hay bales Claude and the boy had put out. The freshly cut pasture sloped down to the highway. Across it was the cotton field, and beyond that, the dark green dusty wood, which they owned as well. The sun was behind the wood, very red, looking over the paling trees like a farmer inspecting his own hogs. Why me, she grumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And I break my back to the bone every day working, and I do for the church. She appeared to be the right size of woman to command the arena before her. How am I a hog, she demanded. Exactly how am I like them, she jabbed the stream of water at the pigs. There's plenty trash there. I didn't have to be me. If you like trash better, go and get yourself some trash then, she railed. You could have made me trash if trash what you wanted. Why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with her hose in it and the watery snake appeared momentarily in the air. I could quit working. I could take it easy. I could be filthy, she growled. Lounge about on the sidewalk all day drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. In the deepening light, everything was taking on a mysterious hue. The pasture was growing a particular glassy green and a streak of the highway had turned lavender. She braced herself for a final assault and this time her voice rolled out over the pasture. Go on, she yelled. Call me a hog. Call me a hog again from hell. Call me a war hog from hell. Put that bottom rail on the top. There will be still be a top and still be a bottom.
garbled echo returned to her. A final surge of fury shook her, and she roared, Who do you think you are? The color of everything filled crimson sky burned for a moment with a transparent intensity. The question carried over the pasture and across the highway in the cotton field and returned to her clearly like an answer from beyond the wood. She opened her mouth, but no sound came out. A tiny truck, clods appeared on the highway, heading rapidly out of sight. Its gears scraped thinly. It looked like a child's toy. At any moment, a bigger truck might smash into it and scatter clod and the help's brains all over the road. Mrs. Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed on the highway, all her muscles rigid until about five or six minutes the truck reappeared returning. She waited until she, it had time to turn into the own road. Then like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as if through the very heart of mystery down into the pig parlor or at the hogs. They had settled all in one corner around the old sow who was grunting softly. A red glow suffused them. They appeared to pant with secret life. Until the sun slipped finally behind a tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through the field of crimson and leading like an extension of a highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture of hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled on her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through the field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and given the wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for the good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail on the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment the vision faded, but she remained where she was. At length she got down, turned off the faucet, and in a slow way on the darkening path to the house. In woods around her, the invisible cricket chorus had struck up, and what she heard were the voices of souls climbing upward into the starry field, shouting hallelujah. Are you hearing it? Are you hearing Jesus' response to his disciples when they say, what about us? We're not like that kid. We've given up everything. We're the good guys. You hear what Jesus is saying to you? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.